I'm Wayne Koch. I'm a professor of otolaryngology, which is ear, nose, and throat, uh, at Johns Hopkins. That's my day job. Um, I have uh, been to Africa and to South America on, I think, now 15 short-term trips. And so um, my experience is moderate, I would say. The, the people that are there full-time for their careers are, are my heroes. And uh, I don't pretend to be that. But uh, I did want to talk about some uh, specific things about head and neck surgery. Uh, if you're wondering what uh, to do with your life and thinking about different options, uh, you'll, you'll see some things that may be helpful. Uh, and then I'm, uh, I'm trying to pull together some thoughts that I've had through the conference and, and actually before the conference uh, about our role in healthcare. So let, let's pray and, uh, and then we'll go to the slides. Lord, thank you so much for this conference, for the people you've drawn to it, and for your presence here. It's that last part that makes it um, uh, what it is. It's your presence in our lives, not uh, our accomplishments. That is both our joy and our strength and our purpose. And so we uh, turn and acknowledge that as we uh, begin to look at something that uh, gets down into the nitty-gritty of uh, the fallen world. Help us to continue to see Jesus this morning. We pray that in your name. Amen. So uh, the goals that I want to um, uh, spend time on this morning are to talk about subspecialty surgery. Um, uh, as a head and neck surgeon uh, in an organization, PACS, the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons, that trains general surgeons, I'm a little bit out of place. Uh, and I think that may be the case for uh, people in a lot of the subspecialties uh, as they think about how to contribute to work that we do. I want to examine uh, some of what I've seen in Africa and what I think the need is there for the kind of work I do and to consider uh, both scope and limitations of that work um, to give an example of how I've linked my academic career as a professor at Hopkins with what I do in overseas missions and then to introduce, for those of you who haven't heard much about PACS, uh, the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. And, and I um, am very big on PACS because uh, I think, to, to borrow um, the um, words from Brian Fickert in the opening keynote, I think PACS is truly an asset-based, participatory, and development-focused uh, uh, ministry. And so, in many ways, a model and one that I'm uh, very sold out on. Well, if you're a medical student, uh, perhaps you have had this conversation. When I was a medical student in Pittsburgh, uh, my pastor was a very forward-thinking man. This was in the late 70s. Uh, he was uh, probably about 10 years ahead of his time in terms of thinking about how the gospel should impact the city. Uh, the Christian Community Health uh, um, Association was new, and he had gone to some meetings, and he basically said to me, unless you go into primary care, you're not really going to be able to be uh, useful for the kingdom. Uh, I would say that that's old thought, except that my daughter, who is now a fourth-year uh, medical student at the University of Maryland, went back to a healthcare uh, setting where she had worked in primary care and told her mentor there that she was applying for general surgery, and she got much the same response. How, how can you be a surgeon when your passion has been for justice and healthcare in the city? Uh, and so. Um, this statement, if you really want to be a Christian missionary, a medical missionary, you need to fill in the blank. Um, I answer with Ephesians 2.10. And uh, that is, you are, we are God's workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. How does that apply? Your passions, your skills, the things that interest you are part of how God has made you. And so that's part of that workmanship. And so I think we need to trust that we follow those passions and uh, skills and uh, allow Jesus to show us what the good works are that God's prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, you can be useful in a lot of different ways. So, another question that I like to just uh, use as a ground-setting um, kind of question is, why do we do health care in missions at all? I'm a Presbyterian, and the Presbyterians adva- uh, um, abandoned health care as part of their missions back in the 30s because of a controversy between the social gospel folks who said, you know, let's just go and do good in Africa or wherever, and the church planter evangelist types who said, no, all that really matters is the salvation of souls and the planting of churches. Uh, we're not going to get mixed up in all of that health care stuff. So why did Jesus use health care in his earthly ministry? You've probably thought about this, and I've put up three answers there more. Uh, one is that it demonstrates his promised restoration. All of his healings were showing that when he came as Messiah, he was going to restore all things and that sin and death and sickness were going to be gone forever. So when we show that by helping someone be healed, we demonstrate that same promise. Uh, God heals. All the surgeons do is cut and traumatize. And so you can show that in small ways and in big ways. It shows love and mercy and justice to individuals, and that's certainly part of our Christian uh, uh, mission uh, purpose. Sometimes that's all we can do in Muslim settings and other places like that, uh, at least in the moment. Certainly in China and places where officially tongues are tied, you can say things, but if you want to stay very long and keep saying them, you need to say them discreetly. But you can always show love, mercy, and justice. And it draws people in to think about big questions. Um, why health care? Well, the rich and the poor, when they're on your table, naked and ready to have a surgery, are exactly the same, and they know that. And so we bring people in to a place where they're vulnerable and start to ask and think about big questions. It's interesting to me, and this is a conversation I've had with some of the missions, uh, missionaries uh, on the field, that Jesus didn't heal everybody. When he went to a town, he'd heal a few people, and he'd say, Um, He'd always link with the healing something about their eternal soul and their need for uh, forgiveness. And uh, the other thing that's interesting is that everybody that Jesus healed later went on to die. Um, The death rate is still 100%. So we hear and we start thinking about how are we going to solve the health care problems in Africa? How are we going to make sure that, that cancer is wiped out or Google how are we going to live forever? Wasn't that great on Time Magazine's cover? You know, Google is going to solve the problems that Ponce de Leon couldn't figure out in southern Florida about 300 years ago, 400 years ago. So we have to be realistic and remember then that our purpose is to glorify Christ. It's not to solve all the health care needs in Africa. Um, it's to do glorify Christ by solving health care needs and problems. So there's an African surgical crisis. Those in the room probably all know most of these statistics and can quote other ones. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, Bruce Steffi's the other night at the PAX dinner showed a slide that said there are 36 million people currently needing surgery in Africa. It's an amazing problem. Um, and so no matter what you can do, you can do something in this tremendous 
realm of problem. But the government and the NGOs until just recently have focused mostly on preventable diseases, and that's good. That's where the big bang for the buck from a public health perspective is. But at the same time, there are many working people and young, healthy, otherwise healthy children whose lives can be completely changed or saved by a simple surgical intervention. It's a one-time and many times a one-time fix for a condition. And so uh, it is an opportunity for us to do the three things that Jesus did when he was doing health care. One of the problems in Africa uh, currently is brain drain, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And with brain drain comes a paucity of surgeons. Um, 20 countries in sub-Saharan Africa have less than 20 surgeons. And so you start looking at uh, one surgeon per million people or less than that. And then there aren't enough doctors to train other doctors. So Africa has really gotten themselves uh, or has, has found themselves in a situation that without some help uh, seems impossible to get out of. There are more uh, doctors in Ghana, from Ghana in the U.K. than there are in Ghana. I think there are more Ethiopian surgeons in Washington, D.C. than there are in Ethiopia. I've heard that statistic as well. So there are lots of those kinds of examples. Uh, surgeons who get trained can, can get out, and they can get good work in the um, Arab Emirates or Dubai or Europe, and their working conditions and their pay are much better. The, the biggest reason I think that um, African surgeons uh, leave and stay where they go is the education of their children. I don't think um, folks are so concerned about their own lifestyle, but they, when they see what's available for their kids, it's just a, such a compelling thing, as it is for us. And so that's a problem. PAX has tried to um, answer these uh, concerns, or at least address them, by a variety of things. Uh, first of all, it's a model that trains surgeons in country so that they learn how to do surgery in the setting that we hope they'll stay in and that they're doing surgery close to where they grew up. There's a statistic that um, 65% of all otolaryngologists live within 45 minutes' drive of their mothers in law. <laughs> that may be a sexist statement, I'm not sure, but um, it tells you something, and the same is true in all over the world. You want to be near your family. And so if an African surgeon had his or her choice, in many cases, they wouldn't emigrate to Europe or another place. They'd stay close to home, close to family. And so um, that's uh, part of the strategy. Then we ask them to make a commitment to stay. We try to place them in a hospital and set up a, a system or a, a contract where they can uh, practice and have a, an African middle-class lifestyle. The surgeons need to be able to drive a car put their kids in a private school if that's available in their community, and have um, both the um, outdoor cooking that Cameroonians love out behind the house and a stove in the house with an uh, electrical uh, system that will support it. Or they're going to be uncomfortable and probably not stay. So we try to set those sorts of things up by contract as much as possible. And uh, PACs, uh, not so much the um, volunteer part-time people like me, but the full-time surgeons lead by example. They have given up tremendous amounts of benefit in the U.S. to go and be in the country where they're working. So it's really an incarnational sort of a model, go and stay. That shows the residents that we're training, by example, that they can also be missionaries and go and stay. And many of them see their role as missionary surgeons. And then, of course, uh, PACs 
the surgeons that we take into the residency training program are uh, folks who are committed Christians, best we can tell, and so the faith motivation to be a missionary, to, to do the things that we do for the same reasons that we're doing them, is part of the program. Well, what about surgeons, specifically head and neck surgeons then? In Baltimore, uh, we have about 600,000 people in the, in the larger area around, and we have about 150 ENT surgeons. In Cameroon, with 20 million people, there are about eight ENT surgeons. So you can do the math. I, when I come home from uh, Africa and I say, why am I here? Why am I in the U.S. doing what I'm doing? Well, there are obvious reasons for that, but, um, but the need in Africa is just tremendous. There's only one medical school in Cameroon, and they have three faculty members who are ENTs trying to train 25 residents. Uh, I don't think that the residents get very much hands-on uh, um, kind of experience there. Whereas in uh, Maryland, we have two medical schools with about 60 faculty members and so on. So why, why did I choose head and neck surgery out of all the different things I could do? Um, that's a good question. One, is, uh, one reason for it is that it does um, address a life-threatening cancer kind of problem, something that I thought was uh, adequately challenging from an importance point of view. You get to talk to people about life and death kinds of issues because their cancer, if not treated, uh, will uh, prematurely end their lives. Uh, otolaryngologists uh, practice a continuity of care. We get to see our patients pre-op and post-op, and we keep seeing them. And the reason for that is we are the diagnosticians for the mouth, nose, throat. And uh, so you don't send your patient back to an internist to follow up their larynx cancer after they've been treated. You continue to see those people. So I have patients that I see both in Africa and at home over and over and over again, and you can develop a long-term relationship with those people and their families. Because the cancers that we take care of are right up here, right in the face, uh, we get to discuss not only cure, but a lot of quality of life issues that are part of what it is to be human. And that opens the door to a lot of those conversations about life that then can uh, go into a faith kind of, um, uh, of uh, discussion as you follow. Because social appearance, how do you look? Do I have to wrap my face up in order to go out in public? That's important to people. Uh, eating, more important perhaps in uh, the developing world in some cultures than it is here as a social time. You sit down with people and eat. If you can't eat, uh, then you are cast out of a lot of social interaction. And then, of course, communication, all parts of things that we need to address as we're taking care of head and neck cancers. And then I think we've got the coolest anatomy so, to deal with. When I've gone to Africa, I've seen quite a few uh, cases like this one. Here's a woman that has a submandibular mass, and you can see she's got a big keloid scar. Why does she have a big keloid scar? Because somebody thought they could take this out and they had not been trained adequately in the anatomy, got down into some cranial nerve country and uh, shrieked and peaked, peaked and shrieked, got out. Um, and so good training for things that are common uh, so that our surgeons can handle things or know what they shouldn't try to handle is part of my goal when I go uh, and work with the PACS group. So PACS right now, uh, this, this slide is a little bit old, eight general surgery programs in eight uh, mostly rural African hospitals. There are at least 16 full-time U.S. trained general surgeons there. There's actually more than that. We're trying to get three at each site. 
there's more than 100 people like me who go uh, once a year or thereabouts uh, to Africa. And I think it's some, somewhere in the range of $3 million of, of uh, volunteer time value last year was given by adjunct faculty. Uh, and we are a commission of the Christian Medical and Dental Association, PACS. If you want to see the PACS website, you can either enter uh, PACS directly into a search or you can go through CMDA's website. The strategy then is to have full-time uh, residency program directors and part-time volunteers training uh, men and women both in surgical skills but also in leadership and uh, mentoring in their faith walk. We pay the residents' salaries from donations from the states. We um, write exams so that uh, the residents are uh, ready to uh, pass the kinds of accreditation exams they have to pass. And we do uh, an annual basic science course for the residents. Residents are taken from regional areas, uh, usually from uh, the country where the program is or a neighboring country. And uh, we, as I said before, try to support their lifestyle during residency and then place them. Wax and COSEXA are the West African College of Surgeons and the College of Surgeons of Eastern, South, and Central Africa, Central and Southern Africa. Those are the accrediting bodies that are not nationally centered in Africa for surgeons. So um, if you want to go and hang out your shingle as a surgeon in Ethiopia, uh, you either need to have graduated from an Ethiopian surgery program, a government program, or have COSEXA accreditation. We are um, working with and, and having increasing success in getting those accreditations for the graduates. So uh, this is a, uh, just a map showing where the programs are uh, uh, throughout Africa, and the uh, runs in red are starting soon uh, in Malawi, uh, Arusha in Tanzania and uh, Egypt, and then there are programs in Kenya, in Ethiopia, Cameroon, Gabon, Niger. I think I got everybody. The number of uh, residents trained so far, uh, this, uh, this year I think there are 43 residents in training in the different programs. Goal to train 200 by the year 2010, or I'm sorry, uh, 2020, and we're on target for that. This is an old uh, slide, I've got to get Bruce's update of the countries where our graduates have gone. So I've done most of my work at Soto Christian Hospital in southern Ethiopia. This is the entrance gate to Soto. It's an SIM hospital. And here is Soto. Um, I don't know if i got a pointer here or not, but uh, Addis is uh, up to the east and more central. It's about six hours drive to Soto. Beautiful place, high above the Rift Valley. Um, here are the Residents that were in the program two years ago when I visited, uh, the two men on the far, uh, your far left standing, Paul Gray and John Pollock, are the full-time program directors at SOTO. And the other place that I've had experience with is the um, Bingo Baptist Hospital in northwest Cameroon. It's the English-speaking portion of Cameroon. This is the entrance to Mbingo. And uh, the arrow shows where it is in relationship to Yunde, which is in the uh, capital city, South Central, and Douala, the port city. Those are the places you fly into. Then drive six beautiful hours uh, with no restroom stops <laughs> up to uh, Bingo. Our deliverable are graduates, young men and women who are fully competent, ready-to-go surgeons. Uh, these guys have a huge amount of on, hands-on surgical experience and are 
very, very qualified by the time they finish. This is Henry Innie, who finished uh, the program in Mbingo two years ago. Uh, Jim Brown and Steve Sparks, the two program directors, standing next to Henry. Henry was on his way to Liberia. I think he stopped in uh, Nigeria. I'm not sure whether Henry's gotten to Liberia yet or not. This is this year's graduates from the graduation this summer. Uh, Jerry Brown is going back to his home in Liberia. Uh, Mafila is going back to DRC, where he grew up and Dr. Ekwin to uh, southern Cameroon. And then in Ethiopia, this is Teddy, we call him Teddy, Tuodras Tamiro. Uh, Teddy is a um, man from western Ethiopia who was placed in eastern Ethiopia in a mostly Muslim town by the government after he finished medical school. He was a general medical officer, and then he came to PAX. He has gone back to Goba, which is a town... um, in the eastern part of Ethiopia, again, about 90, 95% Muslim. And he's the only surgeon for an area that I think has about 800,000 people uh, estimated. There is an OBGYN who is a man of peace. He's a Muslim man, uh, but you've heard that term, man of peace. He's a a friend to Teddy, a helper. Um, They work well together, uh, and uh, they live together in um, discussion about their philosophies and, and theologies of living. Teddy, um, that's him on rounds at his hospital, Teddy has an ultrasound machine, and uh, when he wants to share the gospel with somebody, he takes them into his ultrasound room, because that's a place where you can close the door and be alone with the patient. We uh, jokingly said that he should tell them that, uh, that he can see their heart and that uh, their heart has a hole in it and needs Jesus. <laughs> One of the things that I um, experience at Hopkins, and perhaps you have too, are discussions with people who are not motivated by the same thing I am to do the same work that I'm doing, and that is to go overseas and teach or go overseas and do humanitarian work. What's the difference? Well, I try to be affirming to my colleagues who are doing that. They they do want to give back, I think is the term I hear a lot. I try to turn the conversation around, you know, what are you giving back to? And, of course, we're going to give glory to Christ. I think it's important to remember the distinction as I go. I have to redirect myself because if I'm going to give back, it's focused on me and the glory comes back to me. And then if I'm um, not being treated the way I want or be able to do the things that I want, I'm concerned that I'm failing or that I'm being failed. Whereas if I'm giving glory to Christ, it's about him. Whatever he wants from me that time, that trip, that's fine. If the surgeries uh, happen or don't happen, um, the purpose is to give glory to Christ. Uh, Humanitarian folks go because they're challenging and interesting cases, and I'll show you some of those. And indeed, they are challenging and interesting. It's a great um, uh, stimulus to my practice to go to Africa. But I go, as I said before, to show justice and mercy and to uh, give a foretaste of Christ's restoring of all things. Um, Again, focus, why are we there? And uh, there is great travel and adventure, uh, even six hours with no bathroom stops. Uh, It's beautiful drives and interesting things to see. But we go, of course, to make disciples um, and to be attractional to those who are there full-time to be able to witness uh, to Jesus Christ. So, With that, I'm going to give three verses because I think it's useful for us to have uh, a sense for where we stand. Then I want to get into um, some pictures. Um, When somebody invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. When you participate in a mission, go with humility. Um, We are all poor, as Brian Fickett reminded us the other night. 
second verse that I need to go over um, when I go on medical mission trips is from Paul's uh, great love chapter. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So when I get angry or frustrated or whatever, when I count my accomplishments, how many surgeries have I done, if love isn't my aim, I've missed the point. The poor you'll have with you always. You can help them anytime you want, but you'll not always have me. Uh, We need to have balance and focus. Sometimes the tendency is uh, I go and I work harder in Africa than I do at home, and then sometimes my heart gets strained and my compass gets off center. So stay focused on your relationship with Christ. And then my favorite mission mini parable, parable of the sower. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows. Sleeps or gets up. Surgeons can handle that, right? Whether you sleep or get up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. We participate in what God is doing, but God is the one that's doing it. So, general surgeons and specialty surgeons. What's the difference? Why did I go into a specialty field? What do I have to bring? Well, if there's only one surgeon in a community in in rural Africa for 800,000 people, you'd probably want him to be a general surgeon, right? That makes a lot of sense. And I want my general surgery uh, trainees, the people that I've helped to train, to be able to do some of the things that I can do as a head and neck surgeon, but not all. Um, and so I bring a center of excellence and teaching to them to help with what they are going to see. They treat a broad array of diseases, but uh, some of them are a very low volume. And so when they have problems that are the sort of thing that they've not seen before, we offer, you know, um, online and, and by email consultation all the time. I keep getting these pictures of horrendiomas from Africa, and I sometimes will write back and say, either wait until I get there or someone like me gets there, or isn't there somebody you can save today? Because some of these people are just um, even straining for me and what I would do in Africa. Uh, And so this broad experience and this focus expertise, I think, can help each other. So we see large benign tumors. You think about 16 million people in Cameroon and AT&T surgeons, most of whom who wouldn't touch a, a big tumor. And how many big tumors are there out there in Cameroon that could walk in the door of Mbingo Baptist Hospital the two weeks that I'm there? The number is virtually limitless. Uh, congenital masses. Uh, we don't see much of what we see in the United States, which is increasingly HPV-related oropharyngeal cancer in Africa. I've not seen cases. I've been bringing specimens home and testing them for HPV. So far, that epidemic hasn't hit Africa from what I can tell. But there is larynx cancer. Even when you buy your cigarettes one at a time from street vendors, you can still get larynx cancer. And there's quite a bit of maxillary cancer that I see. And then uh, some limited sinus disease that I think is useful to do. So now we go into a few minutes of of, uh, pictures. I'll go through these relatively quickly because of the time. Uh, but just to give you a flavor of what we do. This man came in. His family had abandoned him, thought he was going to die. Two years later, he hadn't died. His church got enough money to send him to Soto with a note, please help me. Um, The day before we did his surgery, he said, will you pray for me? He got down on his knees between all of us on rounds, and uh, we laid hands on him and prayed for him. Strong Christian believer, a couple of kids, uh, and this mass, which is the sort of thing that you have to wrap your head for. Turns out this was a amyloblastoma. I thought it was a large cancer. 
Um, the, the pathologist who comes to Soto once a month just happened to be there the day that this guy showed up, and we did a touch prep from his nose, found out it was an amyloblastoma, which, if you don't know, is a benign um, dental origin tumor. And after about eight hours, we got all the amyloblastoma that we could see out and put a flap in to cover over so that he at least looks presentable um, and, and doesn't have to wrap his head uh, this gentleman came in to us in a bingo with his face in a wrap. Um, it's one of my rules. If your face is all wrapped up, you probably don't want to know what's in there. Uh, this is a big neuroblastoma, uh, a neurofibroma, excuse me, uh, coming off the lower jaw, pulling his lip down. And, uh, the, again, took about eight hours to get this off and, and get him put back together. He had four scars from places where people had tried to get into this tumor. And because there were these huge vessels going through the skin, Vessels feeding this through his skin were as big as your radial artery. Amazing vessels coming into this thing. Um, nobody had enough um, sort of awareness of what they were getting into to be ready for that, and so they stopped. Um, amyloblastomas, again, big thing in Africa, quite a few of these cases. This young man um, had a large central amyloblastoma, which Jim Brown helped me to reconstruct with some rib. Large goiters, you've seen those in almost every missionary talk. This uh, young kid, uh, his picture showed, was showed up on one of my first slides, had a, an encephalocele. Uh, and uh, you can see the worry on the mother's face. Uh, they sent me this picture before I went to Ethiopia the first time, and I was going to show it at our church because I have people pray for us when we go. And a bunch of the guys on session said, you can't show that picture. I said, why not? Because it'll scare our kids. And I think that's probably true. And this is a pretty upsetting picture. This mother did a dance in the recovery room in Soto for about 10 minutes and hugged everybody uh, when we brought this child out with a scar that you can see having closed, removed the encephalocele and closed it. Here's another child who was not going to uh, look normal for quite a long time with a large locular cyst, unilocular cyst in the neck. Um, so we've done a few things that I've done enough of that I can start to train residents. We, maxillectomies are one of them. Last time I was in uh, Mbingo, we did four maxillectomies with one of our PAX residents. After you've done four maxillectomies, you sort of know how to make the facial incisions, and you sort of know where the arteries are and how to um, begin to approach them. It's one of those procedures that uh, really requires fellowship training, and one of my goals is to start a head and neck fellowship in, uh, in Africa, in Cameroon. Uh, the maxillectomies have a, a broad array of different histologies, some of them malignant, some of them benign. And uh, if you can uh, arrange it, and you can in many places in Africa, I've found, dental obturators, a, a denture that's adapted, can restore function. If you can't get a dental obturator, it's amazing how well people do eating and letting the food go up into their sinus cavity, which becomes the new roof of the mouth and eventually toughens up. So here are a couple of uh, cases that I didn't operate on. It's always important to know what not to operate on. Uh, the one closer to me is an adenoid cystic carcinoma that had already invaded the globe and I didn't think was um, going to help this guy's longevity or quality of life. And the other was a very rapidly expanding lymphoma, it turned out. So sometimes you have to wait the six weeks to get that path back. This was a pleomorphic adenoma, a benign mixed tumor of the jaw, and easily removed uh, and obturated with a dental obturator. This was a squamous cell carcinoma, but in a young man who was an evangelist near Tenwick Hospital, and, and uh, we uh, were able to remove this and repair him with an obturator. Uh, and again, another case. This is a dental obturator. I don't, that picture with the uh, gruesome uh, cheek flap off to the side 
some people find head and neck surgery pictures gruesome. That's a beautiful picture. There's a nice skin graft on there. There's a dental obturator in place. I don't think I, I, I don't have a pointer, or maybe I do. Is this a pointer? There's a, um, there's a wire going up to the zygoma, and then the young lady with her face closed. It's, it's gratifying because this is one of those cases where at the end, everybody in the surgical staff says, wow, doctor, that's beautiful, because they've looked so unhuman, inhuman for a while during the surgery. Laryngectomies. Um, quite a few cases of larynx cancer in Cameroon. It's actually a curable disease. Larynx cancer often presents early because uh, of the hoarseness that is an early sign. We're starting a laryngeal cancer screening program in Cameroon so that we can have community workers send us photographs from fiber optic laryngoscopies and catch people while their disease is early. This first man that I did a laryngectomy on, I had a lot of consternation. Should I even do a laryngectomy in Africa? Um, I... Um, knew that he needed something. He had um, come in with an obstructing laryngeal cancer. We had to trach him. Uh, he wasn't going to live very long if we didn't do his surgery. We prayed about it, and the next day in walked a man, uh, and with good esophageal speech, which is what you use when your larynx is gone, asked if we had laryngectomy tubes. Well, it turns out this guy was a policeman from the nearby town of Bamenda. He had had a laryngectomy in Nigeria about 10 years earlier and was a long-term survivor. I said, sir, God sent you here today. You don't know that, but here's the situation. I'm going to make you a deal. I'll give you two laryngectomy tubes if you'll talk to my patient and tell me after you've talked to him whether you think that he can manage here in um, this part of Cameroon as a new laryngectomy patient. They became good friends, uh, the Christian policeman with a long-term laryngectomy and the Fulani Muslim older gentleman, uh, and uh, they still get together and uh, have a little laryngectomy club there in Cameroon. So this guy is four years out now. I see him each year. I go back doing quite well. We've done 12 laryngectomies. Three of them are vertical hemilaryngectomies, which are great African procedures. You open the thyroid cartilage anteriorly with a small incision, um, look at both vocal cords, take one out, and close it up. Two days later, they can be decannulated. They can swallow the next day and go home. If you catch cancers early, you can cure some of them with very good cost effectiveness. Here's just an example of a larynx cancer. You can see uh, this is the larynx opened up. It's sideways. Epiglottis is towards the door away from me. Uh, the trach site is the brownish gray um, uh, tissue down the bottom, and the tumor is the more strawberry-colored stuff in the center. This is a transglottic fungating tumor that was blocking the airway, requiring a tracheotomy, but it was all contained within the larynx. So once we got the larynx out, this guy has a long-term good prognosis. This one a little less good, tumor growing out through the skin. We put a pectoralis flap up over the area just to cover so that he would have good um, quality of life. Some lip cancers. Uh, the thing about redoing lip cancers is getting your lip to close without a free flap, which um, results in some small mouths, but with good sphincter action, ability to eat and, t and talk. Um, and I'll just flip through these relatively quickly. This is the most challenging one that required both a Abby Estlander flap, a switch flap from the lower lip up, and what's called a carapanzic flap, which is sort of a sliding flap on the other side to get his mouth to close. He wasn't very happy with how tight his mouth was, but he could drink through a straw and talk to us and tell us how unhappy he was, and his lip will get better. Albinism is pretty common in uh, Cameroon in West Africa, and this gentleman had a skin cancer from the sun exposure and his fair skin. Uh, we had to remove his ear and put a pectoralis flap up. Here's a young woman with xeroderma pigmentosum who had a skin cancer on her nose and a forehead flap. So you can do some basic reconstructive work. Um, 
In the sinuses, mucus seals are my favorite thing to see because they look horrible and they're easy to treat. Uh, so this guy actually had a CT scan with him, and uh, you could see his eye was pushed down, and his sclera and conjunctiva were um, very irritated because of that. But his problem was a large black up of uh, mucosa or, or mucus rather in his sinuses. You can get into the nose. Here's a um, lady that has smaller mucosal, and open it. The hole and slide picture B there is you opening up into the mucosal. Once the uh, mucus is drained out, as long as you keep that hole open. Uh, people can go back to normal. Here's a guy that had a huge mucosal, and you can see what the local health uh, care practice was to burn his chest from the faith healer, the, the local traditional healer. Uh, what, all we had to do was open up the mucosal in his nose, and uh, his eye went back into place and was functional again. And a, an older woman with an infected mucopiocele that we were able to remove. So with that, um, a couple of things, a couple of caveats that I think are important. We don't want to do things that hurt when I go to Africa, I try to interface with the ENT people from the country so that I'm not undermining their practice but actually helping. I think it's important when you do surgery to have continuity of care. PAX provides that. Of course, it's important to understand culture, the story about the man with laryngectomy, perhaps a good illustration of that. Um, we come with an invitation and with local leadership. It's important to know and respect your limitations. Don't do things that you wouldn't do at home. Um, and charge a fair price. Here's my continuity of care in Africa. This is Dr. Acha Evristestikum. He's a um, Cameroonian who trained in Kenya to do ENT. Doesn't do the big things except when I'm there, but he takes care of my patients, our patients when he goes. This is a Pius T. He's the uh, director of the Cameroonian Baptist Convention Health Services. And so the hospital in Cameroon is completely run by Cameroonians and administrated very, very well. And then this lady on the closest to me on the picture is Helen. Helen can tell when a patient can pay and when they can't pay in Cameroon. I can't. They all look somewhat poorer than what I would think can pay. Um, but, but with some interviewing and discussion, um, the local um, nurses and uh, administrators are the best people to go to, to when to use your charity funds. We have cultural issues even in Cameroon. Uh, PAX hospitals tend not to be out in forefront areas where uh, the problems with uh, Muslim-Christian uh, conflicts are at their strongest because the hospitals have to be stable. While you're training, you can't have people worrying about whether you're going to be raided and burned. But the Fulani uh, herdsmen that come in are uh, come down from the Chad border, six days of travel for treatment, and uh, we still interface with them. Know what you can do, what you can't do. These are a couple of cases I didn't take on, a rhabdomyosarcoma of a young man and a woman who they told me before I came had, this is a CT scan is of a woman who they told me had a pituitary adenoma. And uh, when I looked at it, I said, that's not a pituitary adenoma. I sent the picture back to my neurosurgeons at home, and they agreed with me that it was a meningioma and that we shouldn't be trying to do it through her sphenoid sinus. So... Um, I think I've already mentioned that I hope in the future that we can have a subspecialty fellowship in head and neck, but for now we're bringing uh, supplies. This is Acha with a microscope that I got in uh, to Cameroon in two suitcases. This is uh, foreign body extraction uh, equipment that we've taken into Ethiopia and Cameroon. The red things down on the uh, corner close to me are part of a Chinese-made toy that makes noise. The problem is when you blow into it, it makes noise. When you breathe back in, the piece of plastic goes into your trachea. 
And they've had eight or nine kids in Soto with that foreign body. So we brought in optical forceps. Uh, it um, uh, has saved about six to eight lives so far already with fairly simple technology. I take residents with me when I can. This is Ryan Lee, one of our chief residents, doing an ear case with the microscope we brought with Acha attending. Partners, local church. Hopkins partners with me. Hopkins and I can walk a certain distance together or down this road. There's some places where we'll have to separate ways. But they're happy to have residents go. My colleagues cover for me while I'm away, and some of them are interested in going with me. I have a patient-generated gift fund, with, which I use to buy equipment. And, and uh, we're working on marrying research that we do. I talked about the HPV testing with what uh, is possible in Africa. I try to meet the national university faculty every place that I go. We're going back to Yunde to meet the ENT faculty when I'm there in February. And then I try to stir the pot by getting my neighborhood uh, in, uh, rotary club to donate money. Uh, so there's lots of different ways that you can um, make this work in your world to bring glory to Christ. So. In conclusion, stay true to your first love. That doesn't mean your surgical love. That means Christ. Be sure that that is your passion each day. But follow your professional passion. Do what God has equipped you to do. Maintain spiritual compass. Bruce Steffi said the other day that the biggest problem people have during training is that they lose a sense of call during those years when you're so strained. Stay balanced because there's a huge amount of work to be done but our job is not to save the world. It's to give glory to Christ. Cross-pollinate in your world. Stir the pot. Get the people who um, are here, who are non-Christians, involved so that they know what you're doing and see that you're doing something different than just humanitarian care. And uh, choose what you choose to do wisely. I think PACS is a great model for surgeons because it is participatory, asset-based, and developmental. And that's it. I think we have nine minutes left for questions. I hope that's enough, and we'll get on to the last talk. Any, any questions, anything that I said that you want to get into conversation about? Yeah. So what can they do? That's a great question. One of the things that we're trying to do is have a curriculum and have a rotation at each site. And so um, my, my goals for the curriculum if we can get three months with a PAX resident, is that they will know how to do an emergency airway. Of course, they get that with the general surgeons. Um, we, we do some thyroids with them. Uh, some of our general surgery training doesn't do as much looking for nerves as I'd like, and I try to make sure that we put a better sheen on that. I think that they should know neck anatomy well enough to be able to assess a, a neck mass and decide whether they should do an excisional biopsy, and what cranial nerves they're going to be encountering while they're doing that, if not able to do a neck dissection. I think that probably will take more than three months, and so it's something that, that we'll get uh, eventually. Um, parotids, I think uh, the general surgeons at most of the sites will do an occasional parotid with the guys when we go, but I just did a parotid in Ethiopia, and uh, the general surgeon that was attending on the case, watching me do it with the residents, said, well, that went a lot faster and with a lot less sweating than when I did one with him. Thank you for coming. So we reinforce some of what's already going on. But it is quite modest um, and, and needs to um, uh, have more people going in um, planned rotations in order to improve that. 
I do think with uh, a one-year fellowship, we can take either a PAX general surgery resident or somebody who's trained in ENT in Hyundai and Cameroon and make them into a reasonably decent, safe head and neck surgeon that can do some of what I do. Uh, and so my five-year goal is to get a fellowship program up and running and start training a few subspecialists. There's one guy in South Africa doing that, and he has sent seven subspecialists now to uh, sub-Saharan African countries who are good head and neck surgeons. Yeah. Why, why would you have to do a neck dissection? Well, one reason is if you're doing a thyroid cancer and you, and you didn't, maybe didn't know it was a cancer, you get in and find there are neck nodes. So mostly it's, you know, in that case and in some of the larynx cancer cases, it is therapeutic. You know, it's, it's the small but mobile node but, but clearly involved. One of the problems that you have, of course, is that radiation and radioactive iodine aren't present. So even that has limited um, usefulness. Um, Staging, that, that's, a, that's a U.S., that's a, that's a developed world problem, I think, for, for most cases, unless there's something you're going to do with that information. Um, so it's mostly to know your way around the neck because people are going to run into things like that woman that I showed with the big keloid. That was a submandibular pleomorphic adenoma. Perfectly curable, easily resectable, but you need to know how to dissect the submandibular triangle to do that. Otherwise, you're going to go in and, and leave the tumor behind like that. Yeah? This number of those look like airway nightmares. Do you do a lot of those at the weight tracks or weight fiber optics? And what kind of limitations do you have with the stuff that you have there? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the first things that I do when I go is to make or reestablish communication with anesthesia. In Cameroon, our anesthesia are a bunch of very well-trained, very good nurse anesthetists. A couple of them work with us when we go each time, and so they become kind of the airway specialists. And like in the U.S., there is a culture or, or interaction of trust that you need to develop with people. Know what their abilities are, know what you can do. So the guy with the, um, the first laryngectomy I did, we, we did a direct laryngoscopy and biopsy. Uh, the um, nurse anesthetist intubated him no problem, had a fungating cancer on his vocal cord. After I biopsied it, I said, I think we can extubate him. So we did. And he developed strider and oxygen sats are dropping. Uh, the nurse anesthetist tried to reintubate him and could not. It had gotten too bloody and swollen. So we did a trach and we had an airway in in about a minute. Um, and he looked at me. This is the first time I had gone to Cameroon. And of course, I'm sweating. And he looked at me and said, I think we can work together. <laughs> Because, you know, he sees that I can get us out of trouble with airway things. So you have to communicate and establish that interaction. Um, this very similar kind of interactions in Ethiopia, and I've been to Tenwick, um, mostly with nurse anesthetists. So they're actually very good at intubating. They're, they're very conservative as in bingo with extubating, um, and we're ready to do a trach if we need to. Now, long term, what do you do? Well, people actually walk around with trachs in Africa reasonably well. Um, uh, without suction machines at home. So um, I'm always a little bit worried about it, but, but what I've seen is that uh, most folks can handle that. There's another question in front here. Yeah. I saw multiple CT scans up there. Mm. Um, can you proceed with your planned residency and subspecialty training without, without the CT scan? That's a good question also. Well, CT scanning is becoming more and more available in places that I go. And uh, in Bingo, you can drive two hours to Bafusum, and if you have about 40 bucks, you can get a CT scan. So some of our patients can get them. 
They're not a great quality, but they're pretty good quality. Soto has a CT scanner sitting waiting for a transformer to show up from Addis that's adequate to make it work. So Soto Christian Hospital has its own CT scanner. But, yes, one of the things that the residents really learn when they go with me on these trips is how to do what we do without having a CT scan. And sometimes you can do things and sometimes you can't. That guy with a big, huge ameloblastoma off of his face, um, I didn't know what that was. And when I found out it was ameloblastoma, I said, okay, there's no CT scan. Um, I'm going to go in through the forehead, and if I can see that the posterior plate of his frontal sinus is intact, I'll keep going. If that's eroded and I'm looking at Dura, I'm going to stop because I'm not going to be safe. So I got in and made an incision that I could back out of if I had to, and that was okay. So I said, okay, we'll go down, and we had to take his eye out. That eye was not functional. Uh, We'll go down into the posterior orbit, and if that's intact, we'll keep going, and it was. So we did it stepwise like that. But that's the kind of thinking you have to do when you don't have CT scans. Yeah. Um, there is some plastic surgery help. It's like me. It comes when it comes, and it goes when it goes. Um, there's a guy who comes up from South Africa every year to Soto, and he and I are sort of a six months apart, and we've done some tag team amyloblastoma reconstructions. Sometimes I'll resect and he'll reconstruct, and sometimes it's the other way around. Um, there's an orthopedist there, so he can get me iliac crest or some fibula if I need to for those reconstructions if the plastics guys put a bar on, a plate on. Um, I've not tried to do microvascular reconstruction in Africa. I don't do it. One of my friends, Kofi Boheen from Hopkins, is a, a Ghanaian uh, surgeon working in the U.S. He has done some free flaps in Ghana in the government hospital. Takes loops and does them. Um, he's got continuity of care. There are people there who know how to care for those people afterwards. But that's a stretch. But the other flaps, the forehead flap, the pectoralis flap, I've done latissimus flaps. Those are all things that are in my armamentarium. Uh, pectoralis flap is one of the things I think I can teach general surgeons to do. And both Paul Gray and uh, uh, Jim, I think Jim Brown has done some pec flaps since I left after we've done one or two together. It's pretty straightforward stuff. Well, it's 10 after, so uh, if you have other questions, I'll be glad to uh, answer them. There are some cards up here. If anybody wants to contact me, my email and everything I left up here, thank you very much. <laughs>